0: Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians Podcast, and today we'll be discussing the status of HIV-AIDS in Lebanon and the MENA region, and our guest today is Dr. Nisreen Rizik. Dr. Rizik is an infectious disease specialist and an HIV specialist specifically is currently practicing at the American University of Beirut Medical Center, where she's assistant professor and she has been involved in HIV care in Lebanon uh, since she moved back there from the U.S., uh, where she worked and where she graduated from Case Western uh, Reserve University. Welcome, Dr. Rizzo, uh, to our podcast.
1: Thank you, Dr. Diab. Thank you. Thank you for hosting me today.
0: Yeah, thank you for being on the podcast today with us. Thank you. Yeah, you've been involved. So since you moved to Lebanon, you have been involved in HIV care in the country. And I've seen that also you have been involved in uh, HIV worldwide, actually, because you've been to multiple conferences, you've been an invited speaker, and you've actually arranged uh, multiple international conferences in HIV. So how did you get involved in, in HIV care?
1: I've been interested, I've been interested by, I mean, I've been interested in, by, by HIV ever since you know, I started reading about that. I remember reading in the a, in a, in a newspapers, hearing on the news about AIDS and the epidemic back in the 80's, and the devastation that the disease caused in different parts of the world. Uh, the many questions and then the many questions people had and the many uncertainties. And then later on, the, the spectacular advances in science and medicine, HIV medicine, in terms of treatment, uh, what we know today and how we practice today is so different. So it's been, it, it you know, I was interested in the beginning. And I suppose, you know, I kept that and uh, the HIV field and HIV medicine and the science around HIV and the infection are extremely interesting and very stimulating. So it's a pleasure to be involved in this field and to be, um, you know, practicing as I am today.
0: I think it's great that you're involved in this. I'm sure you're you're needed very well in the region right now. And so just a question about, do you have any data about the number of HIV patients in Lebanon and the MENA region or the number of HIV diagnoses uh, that are currently reported? In
1: the region. So I think I, I shared with you earlier a couple of slides and the latest UNAIDS information data from the Middle East shows that there are around uh, probably half a million people living with HIV in the big MENA region that's the Middle East and North Africa. This region, even though the number is not great, but this region is one of the two regions in the world only that have uh, or continue to witness the sharpest increases in the number of new infections compared to previous years. And uh, where the mortality, unfortunately, from HIV and AIDS continues also to to rise compared to previous years. So which uh, signifies basically, which means that we're basically missing a lot of new infections probably. And uh, well, HIV is spreading in this region. And it's it's not, uh, again, the numbers are not very big, but the increase in percentage... Is interesting and seems to continue despite. Well, in comparison, for example, you have other p- p- uh, parts of the world, especially sub-Saharan Africa, where the epidemic's been controlled very well. We see a drop in the number of uh, number and the percentage of new infections, and a drop in the mortality compared to previous years. So globally, we've achieved great results globally in terms of carrying the epidemic or slowing it down in, in the sense that no infections are or have decreased. Uh, however, in the Middle East, it's the opposite. And hence, you know, the need to intensify the efforts probably and do better, do more to slow this epidemic.
0: Why do you think this increase is happening? Is it because People are starting to test more for the virus right now. Well, there are different. I mean, I mean there are different.
1: Uh, there are different explanations, different uh, theories. Unfortunately, none of the countries or nations in the Middle East are. The, the, the UNAIDS urges and asks all the countries to basically report their numbers, and we see from the reported uh, data in the Middle East that uh, there. Not as I said, a lot of cases, but uh, we we continue to see a, a rise. There's several factors contribute to this, and I, I believe it's it's true. I mean, the numbers are true. Whether we're testing, it, it's it's it would be great if if it's just because we're testing more where I think that uh, our perception as HIV practitioners and experts from the region in discussing this with epidemiologists from the Middle East, that in fact, there are pockets of infection and then populations, key populations, that contribute to the rising numbers and keep on fueling this epidemic, particularly among men who have sex with men, female sex workers and their clients and IV drug users across this, again, Middle East and North Africa. Every country is different. Every country has a different population or uh, demographic, and uh, particular particularities in terms of the populations involved. However, it signifies the rising in the number. Signifies a, I think, a, a delay in controlling a true lag and really controlling and preventing no infections from occurring. Say, I mean, I I think, you know, I don't know if you saw the slides, but the the UNAIDS advocates for a a comprehensive treatment uh, cascade for HIV. And we know that, uh, you know, doing HIV medicine, being practicing in this field for several years, different places in the world. It's not very easy to, of course, engage patients. And and first of all, you know, uh, get people to get tested for HIV. There's a lot of stigma around the test itself. Uh, nobody wants to be tested. It's always very scary. People, uh, wherever they are in the world, there's something about this test and this disease that is special and that's related to the stigma that stuck to this uh, infection and this medical condition from the early days from 1980 and 84. So there is that, and then after testing, you wanna make sure if somebody tests positive, hope that they're retained in care and engaged in care. And that's a very difficult step also to achieve. And then third step is to make sure they're retained in care. They keep coming, they keep taking their medications, they're engaged, to doing their tests, and they're also are issues with that. A lot of it is also unfortunately related to the stigma that the subjects perceive and that they live and go through once they are diagnosed with HIV. And a lot of that stigma is internalized. It has to do with the way the society or the environment perceives an individual who's positive. But the whole stigma with HIV sticks to people living with HIV. And that's and that's true in in different places but it, of course it varies in in different regions in the world and and the, you know based on the population as well and then after the retention and the you you want to achieve of course viral suppression which is our success and the marker of our success in in terms of hiv management is this measure viral suppression undetectable viral load that's how we know that we've achieved a success and we need to maintain that undetectable viral load by taking the medications and that's where hiv changes or turns into a chronic condition that requires serial testing over the year, regular checkups, visits to the doctor, and continued medical therapy, of course, because our medications are so far, at least in the MENA region, taken daily and orally. So there's that cascade and that continuum. And then there is a fourth, uh, very important uh, one that's been added also to this uh, cascade is the uh, quality of life. And we want to make sure that people living with HIV, because we recognize there's so much stigma, around the HIV, whether in the MENA region or in, in, in Africa or in Europe or in Latin America, different, it, and it's different according to the region. However, this quality of life we perceive is not, we can do better to make this quality of life better for people living with HIV after, you know, being engaged and maintained and virally suppressed to enjoy their lives as they should full healthy long life because uh, we know that treatment is prevention and treatment is uh, treating people anyone infected with HIV if they present early on during the infection the course of the infection started on treatment early then you know that person will have a life expectancy that's similar or maybe greater than uh, longer compared to other individuals living in that society on that or that context which is amazing. It tells a lot. speaks a lot about how well those medications work, how well this whole it, 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 continuum and spectrum of medical care that starts with testing and engagement and retention and then suppression and every step of the way. So I was talking about the continuum and how important it is to make sure and guarantee that we're doing right, because this is the measure. And the WHO and the UNAIDS expect That if everyone living with HIV globally, that 90% of people living with HIV know their status, and 90% of them are engaged in care, and then 90% of them are undetectable, then we can achieve by the goal originally was 2020 and then pushed to 2030, we would achieve zero new infections at the global level, because treatment is prevention. Uh, if If we guarantee that the majority of people living with HIV know their status and they're appropriately engaged in care and maintained on medical treatment to keep their viral load suppressed, we make sure... That this virus is not transmittable or transmitted to their sexual partners, to their children, and anyone around them, whether you know sharing needles or IV drug use and other mother to child or sexual intercourse. Right, so um cut,
0: cut the chain, right? You cut the chain. It is
1: a chain, yeah. it is a chain and starts with testing and then engagement and then virus suppression. And then the fourth very important element is a quality of life that is very important to also consider in any when when, when thinking about this uh, spectrum and the continuum that includes this. So it's it's easy on paper. And I think, you know, it, it's a brilliant concept. It makes sense. And we see that our patients and people living with HIV who are undetectable do not transmit the virus. So it's very important for the individual themselves, because we can, as I said, you know, guarantee that anybody would would have a, a long, healthy, happy life. Uh, provided they keep taking the medicine, because we currently do not have a cure yet. And from a public health perspective, then it is important because we want to make sure that HIV is not transmitted to new partners or new subjects, and and therefore we would achieve eradication of this virus and the pandemic by 2030, hopefully, or maybe you know maybe COVID would would have changed a lot of this delayed the implementation. Of certain measures in different parts of the world and differently affected, differently this spectrum. And a lot of the efforts that have to do with prevention and testing to start with, uh, everything was slowed down uh, due to COVID. We know that from other medical conditions, and COVID has also affected HIV and probably more than other medical conditions because of the vulnerability. Of the individuals concerned by HIV, whether at risk or living with HIV, in any, especially in the MENA region, those individuals are more vulnerable because they belong to key populations that are generally marginalized in different ways. So that is a challenge. And I see that this is a challenge. We're starting to talk about that in you know, the IS 2021. A lot of the sessions, a lot of the discussions were focused on the impact of the COVID pandemic on the HIV pandemic, the similarities, the parallels, and then also the impact in terms of slowing down all the successes and affecting, negatively impacting our fight against HIV. And hopefully, we will learn lessons from the COVID pandemic and how we dealt with it, and a lot of successes in a COVID response that can be applied to the uh, HIV fight, such as uh, implementing more telehealth, making it easier for people to access medical care without moving. And that's super important when we're talking about vulnerable people, marginalized populations, individuals who feel threatened because of their sexuality, because of their profession, because of their mental health issues, maybe, or simply just because they're positive. And in some countries, in the MENA and elsewhere, being positive is dangerous and can basically, you know, uh, uh, people can be threatened, can be aggressed or physically. So it's all part of that stigma that is psychological, but some, some also physical violence affects people living with HIV in certain places. So making their visits to the healthcare centers or the healthcare practitioners difficult in space and moving. So telehealth would is a, is a great alternative in making the doctor or the healthcare provider more accessible in a safe way to deliver the message. And that is something that I think and I see and we've already started using really well in terms of uh, providing remote care. The success of the COVID vaccines is also, I mean, you know, this is a tremendous effort and and it shows that when there is a will, there is definitely a way to get to a vaccine in less than a, a year. Uh, that is, uh, and now there are challenges in, in, and we can talk about the COVID vaccines and the inequity in the distribution and everything else later, but the, the fact that we do have several, not one, but several, five, six, seven, eight functioning, very uh, excellent vaccines with good efficacy and record time shows that, you know, if we're willing, we can get there. So, uh, and it all shows that In terms of HIV, there's probably a lack of a political commitment, a serious political commitment, or serious engagement at the government level for various reasons, again. And it's not only a funding issue. It's not only about the money. It's just also about the political will and the global will at the highest levels and talking governments and international organizations to push the agenda, to pushing seriously towards developing a working vaccine against HIV. And we hope that we can see that in the future, in the very near future. So, um, you know, I think the COVID pandemic was extraordinary in so many ways. And we've, we've had some time, I think, to consider and ponder about several issues Again, similarities, differences, but the impact and lessons learned from COVID to apply to different fields, especially in, as HIV practitioners. And, and I hope and I think that, you know, all our efforts will probably crystallize and lead to concrete action that will impact positively the lives of people concerned or at risk of HIV, because that's very important to deliver prevention message, uh, prevention methods and, and prevention tools. To prevent new infections because that's crucial. And that was slowed down by COVID and also positively impacting the lives of people living with HIV.
0: Yes, so so basically from what I'm getting from you is it's a continuum of care, starting with diagnosis to treatment to viral eradication to finally improve quality of life for these patients. And exactly. So so it seems to me in the MENA region in Lebanon, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a problem with Diagnosis may be a problem because it's taboo and people don't want to say that they've engaged in high-risk behaviors because that could mean that they could get marginalized or viewed in a different way. And so they try to suppress that and not diagnose themselves with HIV, right?
1: Correct. I mean, this, the stigma about and around the HIV is basically uh, a problem to people concerned, whether because they're at higher risk or living with HIV. And this is a problem in the MENA region. So you'll see the numbers from this un cascade. And I mean, if the UNH is aiming to have 90% of people living with HIV uh, know their status, I think in the MENA region, it's the total number is, is, is globally, is less than 50%. And then the cascade, you know, you, you end up with the third step is uh, uh, the number is, if I'm correct, from 2019 was 21% viral eradication among people living with HIV who other their status, which is a, a very, very low number. If, and there's a big gap if, if 90% is a goal and 21 is a big, big way to go. But I agree with you. It's the biggest problem is diagnosis and testing. And again, uh, how, for various reasons. Okay, and how, how
0: are you dealing with that specifically in Lebanon and the Mina region? Like, do you have awareness campaigns or?
1: They're, they're, you... they're uh, definitely pre-COVID because COVID slowed everything down, as we mentioned. So pre-COVID, there was a definitely there were uh, a lot of uh, awareness campaigns uh, yearly. But again, you know, it's it's um, the problem is the stigma and the political will and the funding for all these programs that was probably, uh, HIV is never perceived as a priority for any government, whether in the MENA region or elsewhere in the world in in a serious way. So it's a problem when there is no real political will and no interest in, in addition to the negative connotation and the stigma around the problem. So it explains why, you know, we're uh, probably not seeing more efforts. However, we have a very active civil society in the Nina region, and it's very important to mention their efforts across those countries, creating networks among them of people living with HIV, people at risk with HIV, or simply just activists, creating a big network of organizations, helping each other, and providing support to each other across the countries, because there definitely is a need to be organized in order to fight this epidemic for going to win soon, then we we all need to put our efforts together. And the civil society uh, organizations, NGOs, non-governmental and uh, civil society groups, uh, activists have realized that a, a long time ago, and are pretty active. And it's good to see, because they basically partner in several MENA countries with governments to provide the services, whether it's prevention efforts and campaigns, testing campaigns, and then later on in terms of creating healthcare centers, creating networks for people living with support, providing medications, and providing medical care. In the years after the diagnosis. So this is a, a very uh, society active groups and a pretty um, uh, energetic uh, network that I think once the COVID pandemic ends will see good results or a different maybe uh, more energy again and uh, better results.
0: Can you give us examples of like of names of these NGOs that you're like? Some of well,
1: there are several. I mean, there is the. Uh, ACLS in Tunisia, and you have MERSA, SEDC in uh, Lebanon. Those are the ones that I can think about now, but and many many others. During the IAS, we had a presentation by a, a marvelous uh, group of activists from Pakistan who were basically it's an NGO involved in uh, HIV care, the continuum of care, if you will. And they presented their data about retention and how they were engaging partners with the people living with to keep them retained and engaged in care and, and provide the services across the globe, of course, but also across the MENA region. And great examples from Turkey, excellent activists who take really big risks to support people living with HIV, IV drug users to providing safe injection sites. And that's not easy in this context. We're talking about countries and governments who criminalize same-sex and criminalize IV drug use and do not recognize the mental health dimension of drug use, for example. So, I mean, you see all these NGOs doing superbly well to protecting people at risk and providing services to them and reaching out to homeless individuals, to sex workers, to provide, again, education, shelter, support, uh, testing, medication, and support. Because HIV can be a very lonely disease.
0: So, so I guess once once a patient is diagnosed, let's say in Lebanon or other places in the MENA region, they have to Try to connect with these NGOs and then try to find an HIV doctor, It's not right?
1: necessary. Yeah. It's not no. necessary. It, it, it depends. It varies. Being involved in the spectrum, a lot of these activists or these NGOs and other also governmental agencies. So it happens if the test occurs through an agency with the governmental or NGO, then that person, when they receive their diagnosis, will be offered, of course, through that network or through that agency, medical care referral to a practitioner. So usually this is what happens. It's the continuum. And uh, you you have social workers, case managers, in addition to nurses and pharmacists and physicians, and varies depending on the setting where people will be followed. The other scenario is a person getting the test on their own for various different reasons. And well, they would seek medical care and independently of any governmental agency or NGO and proceed to meeting with a doctor and uh, getting their care independently. So it's definitely not a mandatory. It's easier, I think. It's nicer because that network will provide support. Will Peers, and that's super important. And we would like uh, as a practitioner, HIV practitioners, we, we really do value the input of people living with HIV, being advocates and being part of our agencies or networks, our initiatives, because it's very important to listen to their experience and get from them what works best what needs to be done, how things need to be changed, uh, what we need to do differently, what we need to continue doing, what we need to stop doing, how to basically proceed. And that is very important. Yeah. The community, the voice of the community is very important. We need to hear it.
0: Yeah, it's similar to a lot of other like diseases, especially for us in the pulmonary world. So the other question I have is once a patient is diagnosed, right, they seek care, So the HIV doctors, let's say in Lebanon and other countries, are they just based in Beirut or can they seek care and see an HIV doctor in a region that is... In
1: In Lebanon, for example, the medical care is centralized right? I mean, there are big cities along the coast and maybe inside or more uh, deep in Lebanon, but in general, care is centralized to Beirut in the big Beirut area in Lebanon. I don't think it's the same Uh, in in bigger countries. For example, in Egypt, you'll find big medical centers and teaching hospitals in large cities and closer to where people live. So it it really depends. But it's true that, you know, it's an infectious disease specialist that is important to have, whether leading or taking care of a of people living with HIV, it's very important. And some HIV practitioners in general can be of any background, provided that they have the training and the expertise in taking care of HIV whether they're internists or uh, family practitioners or other, provided that, however, they get the experience and the training to do yeah, that. Because
0: obviously, obviously if, they're, if, the, if the doctors are far away, then either you do that with telehealth or... Exactly.
1: So this is... A, going uh, yes. Doctor, so. yes. But, it, it, you know, a lot of times people living with HIV prefer to go see the doctor far away from the village or the city they live in because of the stigma. Uh, And because nobody knows them where they're going, so it feels safer. And that that is part of the whole challenge and the whole issue.
0: And and another question I have is, uh, once they're diagnosed, obviously because of the stigma, do you see that there's higher rates of depression or anxiety in patients in the MENA region compared to other countries in the world?
1: We've started enrolling in a study to assess that in Lebanon, and I'm hoping that we can partner with several treatment centers in the MENA region to to providing the same questionnaire to assess actually the impact of stigma and depression on people living with HIV and uh, assess that prevalence of these problems. But uh, traditionally and across the world, in going back to the early days and even more recently, several studies from different places indicate that people living with HIV suffer, in fact, more from depression and other mental health issues. And whether this is related to the stigma or stigma has, has a, a big, a big, big part of that. And we talk about it, uh, it's, it's clear and obvious in the Middle East because of the criminalization of same-sex or IV drug use, or the key populations concerned with HIV, where we see, you know, are more marginalized in this Middle East. However, the stigma is also present in other more liberal, less conservative societies across the world. And that is a reality that is taking time to change.
0: And then once you start with medication, the medications are available, I guess, freely to the people. Yes. right? Yes.
1: In in Lebanon, they're free, and I think it's across the MENA region, there definitely is a uh, great support from the WHO and the UNAIDS to uh, creating first national AIDS programs across these countries. And those programs and those developed are well-established, well-developed, and they maintain this continuum. And even uh, during the COVID pandemic, we had a great session at the IAS. And if you want, I can share the link to it it's available on YouTube. Where despite the COVID, the lockdowns and the shortages in medications across this Middle East, at least, the programs were able to maintain the drug supply and keep the medications coming and delivered to the people living with HIV and in different ways, whether they were mailing the medications or creating car pickup stations to pick up the medicine outside of the institution or the pharmacy, or having it delivered directly to the person or providing several months supply ahead of time when those medications were available to, to maintain and basically ensure that no treatment was interrupted. And I think we, they, they did well.
0: Yeah. So basically, I think that the most important thing in the in Lebanon and the region is to encourage patients to go get diagnosed and then fight the stigma, fight the stigma.
1: We really need to, uh, to fight the stigma, as you said, but super important because this is the hurdle. This is the obstacle to delivering the information about prevention, about HIV uh, to people who are concerned, who are more at risk and to everyone in society. It shouldn't be a problem teaching uh, kids, teenagers, everyone about modes of transmission of HIV. And that should also be part of a bigger sexual education and sexual health module that needs to be built probably more cohesively in the MENA and across. You know, we realize finally that HIV care should be part of a bigger sexual health umbrella. And that in order to Provide the testing appropriately to the people who deserve or who are more at risk. It needs to be part of a sexual health comprehensive care that delivers education, awareness, prevention methods, vaccination, condoms, regular testing and screening for syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, and and others to prevent infections. To screen to detect early infections and engage in care to reduce transmission to uh, partners and worsening. So this is this is where it starts, and then maintaining, of course, the continuum of care that we talked about is also important Mm -hmm. and stigma-free. You know, everything needs to be Mm -hmm. stigma-free because it's about uh, medical care, medical problem. Of course, that has you know a lot of social uh, relations to, but but everything is what is not you know medical care.
0: So do you think the future is bright for fighting HIV in, in the MENA region? Or do you think there's going to be a lot of hurdles coming coming up that could take things back?
1: I mean, I don't think that there will be more hurdles. I think the hurdles already exist. And it's just a matter of uh, of time and uh Will, working all together to work around those hurdles, try to uh, destroy that big wall, that the stigma, and then to take one brick at a time. It will take some time. I don't know how long, mm. how much time. We certainly do need to uh, imply on the governments and basically to encourage them to be more serious, more committed in terms of providing more funding and uh, providing the political will and the political push to advancing this agenda further and more efficiently.
0: So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rizek, for uh, being on this podcast and for sharing your expertise uh, on HIV care. I think hopefully people have learned a lot about the continuum of care for HIV patients, uh, both, I guess, internationally and in the MENA region. Uh, Thanks for the work you do for the MENA region. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Zia.